0: Our text for this morning it comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And we will also read verse 7. Now, it is a wonderful thing. God is very kind in his providence. Last time we were on these verses, I only made it about halfway through the sermon that I intended to make it through. Now, whether due to long-windedness or poor planning on my part, I take it as a kind providence of God, because this text lines up tremendously well for what we're doing this morning with a Sunday school, or fall ministries rather, kickoff, where we celebrate what we do here in the church in giving the word to the next generation. So if you would stand for our reading this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I will start reading in the last half of verse 5 through verse 7. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. We've given out these Bibles, and we come to your word this morning, and we pray that you would help us ponder the way that is blameless. In a world where entertainment is everywhere and accessible and endless, and where worthless things secretly creep in, we pray that you would teach us to put before us what is wholesome and right as you have commanded in your word. Temptations surround us. We face our own mortality. We pray that you would give us a heart of integrity, that we might not do the work of those who fall away, but rather that we would be those who walk in your way. We gather here as a witness to the world, that we have turned away from those with an arrogant heart, but that we instead look with favor on the faithful in the land as you yourself do. So when we look to the faithful, we look to those in our own congregation and we ask with you and plead your favor that you would be with many of those in our congregation who are afflicted. There are severe health concerns. There are losses of loved ones. There are broken hearts for unfaithful children. And there are strained relationships. And the list goes on seemingly forever, but you alone are forever. We pray that you would build our faith and strengthen our resolve to minister to and to be ministered to by those who walk in the way that is blameless. We pray that you would make this text this morning good for us, that we might be fit for every good work. Open our eyes and our hearts that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. We pray for your Spirit's blessing over our time this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanksgiving dominates from chapter 1 of First Thessalonians almost through the end of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul is thanking God for who the Thessalonian disciples have become. Given what we've read this morning in verses 5, 6, and 7, we could even say that when more mature disciples have a hand in raising up younger disciples, we are to not be impressed with our own efforts. We are rather to give thanks to God for the work he has done. Paul is confident that the Thessalonians have become true Christian believers. And he gives several reasons for that. One in verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Primarily, he means that the manner in which the gospel itself came to them was powerful and it had a transforming effect. That transformation was found In the way the Thessalonians received not only the apostles, but also the word. That brings us right into what we are looking at this morning. The last half of verse 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Notice there, the apostle fronts imitation of the apostles, not of the Lord. You became imitators of us. And also of the Lord. And the reason he does that is because, as we saw months ago when we were in verse 6, the comparison is primarily between a disciple and a disciple as those who receive the word. What we discussed last time is the Lord primarily gives the word. He receives it too and there's a lot to deal with there in incarnation and how the Lord himself received the word. But the Lord is the giver of the word. We're the receivers. And the comparison between the way one disciple receives the word and the way another disciple receives the word is a much more apt comparison than between the way the Lord received the word and we receive the word. Though there are similarities between those as well and so Paul includes it. What we are looking at today is that we are receivers of the Word, and we receive the Word in imitation of other disciples as well. Paul considers what it means for the Thessalonians to imitate him. You know what sort of men we were among you, and you also became imitators of us. And when he thinks about what it means for a disciple to To imitate another disciple, or in this context, for a disciple to imitate an apostle, he has one thing primarily in mind You received the word. They received the word, they trusted it, they submitted to it, they aligned their thinking to it. But let's ask the question what word? Paul here does not say, interestingly enough, the gospel. He doesn't say you received the gospel. Clearly the gospel is included in the category of word, but likely what he's referring to is something much larger, which leads us to the text that we read this morning by way of call to worship. So I would encourage you to turn to Acts 20 this morning. We are going to spend a little bit of time in Acts 20. You can consider it a twin text. We are in 1 Thessalonians, but Acts chapter 20, I think gives us a very good expression of what Paul meant when he said, you received the word. Paul here, in Acts 20, is speaking to the Ephesian elders as he is working his way to Jerusalem, which will end up being his last trip through Ephesus. And he gives some parting words to the Ephesian elders, which we read this morning. We're going to start in verse 25. So Acts 20, verse 25. Paul's speaking to the Ephesian elders, and now behold, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about, proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Hold that little phrase proclaiming the kingdom. That is, we might say, preaching the gospel, the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that he is Lord. He is King of a kingdom. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. Now verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Proclaiming the kingdom, the whole counsel of God. Everything God intends for us to know. Having these two things together, proclaiming the kingdom and the whole counsel of God, means two things. One, they mean roughly the same thing. Paul isn't meaning to say, I gave you one thing and then I gave you another. He's giving overlapping categories, we might say. However, there is a distinction between proclaiming the kingdom and declaring the whole counsel of God. Think of it this way. I told you that there is a king who is above Caesar And that king has come, he's forgiven your sins through his sacrificial atoning death on the cross. There are implications of what that means. God has given us words of wisdom to live by that are the implications of that gospel. That's the whole counsel of God. I think it's significant the word counsel is in there. The whole counsel of God. So what I think Paul means then, when we go back to 1 Thessalonians, the whole counsel, the word, is the twin realities of the proclamation of the kingdom and the counsel of God. The way we live in light of what this king has done. That is the pattern of Scripture. Think of creation, right? Genesis 1. We have... God telling us that he has created everything and then he gives us some specifics about light and about clouds and about land and about water and about animals and even about people. He's created all of these things. After God creates, the next thing he does is he tells man how to live in light of the world he has made. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in it. You shall have them for food. And he goes on and on. Chapter 2, something similar. He tells Adam, I've put you in the garden, you tend it and you keep it. God acts, and then he tells people how to live in light of what he has done. Same thing in salvation. Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6, very clearly. You yourselves have seen, the Lord says to Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, because of what I have done... I have words for you of how you ought to live. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. God acts. I have proclaimed to you the kingdom and the counsel of God. How do you live in light of what Christ the King has done? God gives us wisdom for living well in his world with him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, you received the word in much affliction. You not only believed the claims we told you about the Christ, you received the instruction that came along with it. You submitted yourselves and aligned your thinking and your way of life to what the Lord has told you is the way to live in his world. Romans 6, verse 17. Paul says the same thing but to the Romans. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There is a lot in there. But to become obedient from the heart is the same thing that he means in 1 Thessalonians 1, six. You received the word. It means you believed the claims, you acted according to its implications, and all of those things, the word he has in Romans 6 as the standard of teaching, the whole counsel of God, the proclamation of the kingdom, and how we live in its light. That is what the disciple receives. And Paul, in his mind, the first mark of a Christian is to receive that word and to align ourselves to it. If we are looking for assurance of the genuineness of faith, the first place we look to is this. Have we aligned our thinking? Have we conformed ourselves? Have we been transformed by the renewal of our mind? to every god-breathed word of scripture. Is that our direction? Is that our aim? And we are to receive it as one to whom God is directly speaking. That's what Paul is after here, isn't he? Remember, one of the marks of a genuine apostle was that he received the word personally from Jesus Christ. The mouth of Jesus communicated to the apostle His own mind. That's one of the marks of a genuine apostle. And Paul tells the Thessalonians, you received it from us as if you were receiving it directly from the Lord. That's what he's commending them for. Not as though they received it just from some schmuck down the street. This is you received it as if Jesus himself were speaking to you. And this is how disciples receive it. Now if Jesus were standing before you, commanding you with all his glorious authority and pleading with you with all his heartfelt compassion, would you tell him you have an hour of my day? One day. And, you know, when I can squeeze you in in the mornings other than that. That's not how we would approach the Christ. That's not how we would approach his word. He's given us a day for fellowship with him. What do we give him of that day? What do we teach our children to give them of that day? With little personal experience of it, I will say that I sometimes am amazed at the psalmist's expression in a place like Psalm 119, verse 62. I will rise at midnight to praise you for your righteous rules. Is that the way we have received the word? Ruminating on it keeps us up at night. The day's troubles might keep me up at night. Now we might say, "Thank God, spiritual life comes by the Spirit." But think about how the Spirit comes to us. John six sixty three. Jesus says, "It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all." The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and our life. The Spirit Himself comes by the words that He has given on the page. And we receive it as if from the hand of Christ himself. If you want to sit at the Lord's feet and nourish your souls deep, dive deep into theology, invest yourself heavily in scripture, that's how we come to know the Christ. That's how we put ourselves Under his authority, that is what it is to receive the word, both the proclamation of the kingdom and all of its promises, as well as all the counsel for how we live wisely and well in it. And if we were to think that the New Testament is worth greater effort than the old, I think God thinks otherwise. Deuteronomy 32, verse 47, for it, referring to everything he said in Deuteronomy, is no empty word for you, but it is. Is your very life, and by his word you shall live long in the land. The word is glorious because it comes from a glorious Lord, and it is a word worthy of receiving at all costs. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, receiving the word in much affliction. Or in tribulation, which I would prefer the translation to be. A result of their reception of the gospel is tribulation. I said we would be in Acts a little bit. Go back just a couple of chapters to Acts 17, verses 2 and 9, and you'll see the actual tribulation or affliction that the believers received the word in. It could be understood to mean that they were in troubling circumstances when they received the word, and that could be true, but I think what Paul is primarily after here is that the word caused them trouble. So Acts chapter 17, verse 2 and following. When Paul went in, "...as was his custom, and on three days Sabbath he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the King of Israel. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous." And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The word caused them trouble, and the word will likely cause us trouble. Remember, Jesus was crucified because of the word and his adherence and obedience to it. Stephen was stoned because of his reception of the Word. The book of Acts is the story of the church being built on the tribulation of the apostles. There's an old saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Tribulation is what we ought to expect. By the end of Acts, Paul finds himself in Rome, and he writes a letter to the Roman leaders, uh, Roman Jewish Roman leaders, the leaders of the Jewish religion in Rome. And he says, I would like to make an appeal to you myself. Um, Would you come listen? And they said, we don't know who you are, but we do know that everywhere this sect that you're a part of is spoken against in every part of the world. But we'll come hear you and listen to you ourselves. In Paul's own day, when the apostles, working miracles, seeing people transformed and converted, what is the result of that? And everywhere, the sect is spoken against. The standard that we are to expect ourselves is tribulation. Matthew 10, verses 44, 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub, how much more those of his household? If they found fault with the faultless one, how much more will they find fault with those who faultfully claim to follow the faultless one? We ought to expect tremendous tribulation if we are to hold fast to the word. And we are warned to calculate whether that is a cost we are willing to pay. Because if the Lord requires us to pay for that devotion, payment is not optional if we are going to remain as part of that kingdom. Romans 8 verse 17, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Suffering is a precondition, sometimes a necessary precondition, if the Lord calls us to it, if we are to receive glory along with Christ A little bit further down in Matthew 10, verses 34 to 39, we're given some example of what that sort of tribulation might look like. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What would we not be willing to pay to give ourselves over to a lifetime of devoted study of the Word of God. I find that we are willing to pay a lot of things, but we often draw the line at time. Other things seem to be more significant if we measure it in terms of the way we give time. One of the reasons I'm emphasizing that is because this is the kickoff for our fall ministries, is it not? Ministries, whether we are investing ourselves into them as teachers and leaders or whether we are investing ourselves in them as learners and receivers, takes time. It doesn't take much else. And we're willing to sacrifice other things often. Often. How about time? If we want our children to grow in the faith, we are leading them into a dangerous path and one that requires a great deal of self-sacrifice. Let us prepare them for it by showing them what the Word is worth. Show them not only how to persevere in trial and tribulation, show them the value of investing in the Word. Paul's praising the Thessalonians because their zeal for the Word did not diminish in affliction. They sacrificed for it. They gave themselves over to it. And he's saying, in doing so, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Is there any higher praise you could get? Is that not worth striving for? And it's worth it. Notice the last phrase. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now there are sad experiences in the world and it is necessary to say that the Spirit alone gives this sort of joy. This is not something we can manufacture. We can't fake it until we make it. We either are given it or we are not. But remember how the Spirit does His work. The word I have spoken to you is Spirit and life. So because circumstances are what they are, and we as sinful people are what we are, joy must be given by the Holy Spirit. Now, we could spend a great deal of time explaining why the Word or how the Word produces this sort of joy in us, but I'm going to simply cut to the chase by asking, does your heart rejoice in hearing declared all the counsel of God more than anything else? Does hearing the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God, produce in you A joy that overwhelms every other joy and every other tribulation you face. And we might ask, does it have to? What if it doesn't? Must must my joy in the word excel every other joy and every other affliction? Well, let me just ask you this. Is there any greater joy than the joy that the Holy Spirit can give? Is the joy incapable of producing in God's people less joy over the word and the glories of Christ than he can over football? Where's the joy come from? Where does real joy come from? It comes from the Spirit. Let's ask the question the other way. Is there any trouble that the Spirit cannot overwhelm with his joy? To which we would say, of course not. The joy of the Spirit can overwhelm any trouble we might face. So, is there anything more joy producing, hope inducing, or perseverance conducing than hearing that your sins are forgiven, there is a place for you in the kingdom of God, and God has shown you the way there? That's marvelous. If you could heal cancer with a touch, if you could straighten out the mind with a word, if you could heal the blind, wouldn't that be amazing? And Jesus says, there's a greater joy than being able to do that. Afflictions remain so we might grow in faith, that we might rejoice in the forgiveness of sins over the restoration of the body. Luke 10, chapter 20. Do not rejoice in that you're able to cast out demons, but rather rejoice in this. Your names are written in heaven. God has a place for you. Your sins are forgiven. That is more amazing than anything else. And how quickly can we tire of the repetition your sins are forgiven? That is the glory. 1 Peter 1, 7. We endure these trials for a little while in order that our faith might be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I take that to mean our glory. The joy the Holy Spirit gives in the Word ought to have no problem overwhelming the troubles we face. The reason it doesn't is we do not give ourselves to the Word the avenue by which the Spirit gives us that joy and produces in us that joy. A Christian who is truly sensible of their sin will never tire of hearing of the forgiveness of sin. And Paul again praises the Thessalonians because they imitated not only the circumstances in which they received the word, they also received it with a joy that was God-given. Greater than sports, greater than politics, greater than the news, greater than Facebook, greater than conversation with God's Spirit-filled people, which is a great thing, we'll come to that in just a second, greater than all of those things is receiving the whole counsel of God. But knowing that isn't enough. We know it's not enough. Our own experiences show it's not enough. And God knows it's not enough because he knows who we are. Some Christians need to be warned about themselves, that they are shallow soil who have perhaps received the word but might get choked out. Some Christians need to be encouraged that God's word is truly shaping them. All Christians need other Christians. We can follow Paul's example, but we can't exactly imitate him. Notice in verse 7 that he he changes it just a little bit. You imitated us, and you became examples to all of those in Macedonia and Achaia. The very word of imitation or mimic at least implies a sort of personal connection. I know you, I see what you do, I can imitate you. That's, That's possible, example seems to me to be one step removed of we've heard what you've done and we think that's a good idea. Let's do it. So I, I find there is a slight distinction between imitation and being an example or following an example. So the Thessalonians imitated Paul and they became examples to others. But this idea of a personal connection leads, I think, to two applications that I think are worth noticing on a day when we celebrate the ministries of our church that God has given us. First is our second line, a family of disciples. We say we are a family of disciples. This should mean that we are more than simply friendly with one another. It should mean that we are deeply and intimately acquainted with one another. And, of course, we can't be with everybody. No one has the relational capacity to be close with 400 people. But it does mean we are close with people among this 400 and intimately acquainted. Who knows you well enough to know the tribulations you face on account of the word, and the joy you have as you receive the word. After this, we have Sunday school. After that, we have a meal to follow. Stick around. Stay for Sunday school, and let your soul feast on God's word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Taste and see that he's good. After that, we have the meal to follow. And I'm going to pose the question this way. What spiritual good is there in being around God's Spirit-filled people? Another way to put it is this, what advantage is there in studying the word and receiving the word in the context of God's people as opposed to simply receiving it at home? What is the advantage of being around God's people rather than ditching out early and just going home because it's, you're quiet and you don't know people and you don't really want to? What's the advantage? Well, let me put it this way. If Saul can prophesy when he is among the prophets where the spirit of prophecy exists, if Samuel, if Saul can prophesy in that context, imagine what the spirit can do if he's living in you and you're among his people. If the contagion of the spirit is so powerful, it can bring Samuel into prophesying, what can it do for God's people? That's why we stick around. That's why we learn and connection with other believers that's why we fellowship with other believers that leads us to the second thing there are two things to the christian faith there is content you received the word but there are people you became imitators of us receiving that word christianity is a religion of specific content you became obedient to the heart the standard of teaching to which you were committed all of our ministries ought to communicate scripture in such a way as that it is not only able to be received but retained and used and produce joy and those who receive it and retain it and use it content is significant the second element is people There are learners or receivers, and there are teachers or givers. You imitated us receiving the word. And those people ought to be imitation worthy as they pursue the word. Now, it's common to find people who want to teach because they think they have something to offer other people. It's rare to find people worthy of imitation because they are incessant receivers of the word. And I'm going to use, I don't normally like doing this, but I'm going to do it because he's he's not uh, part of our congregation anymore. Many of you knew Paul Rainbow. And for those of you who don't, he was a professor at the seminary here in town and he attended our church for a number of years and he taught Sunday school once in a while. He was a a great, great teacher. The best teacher I had in uh, any of my training. What amazed me about Paul Rainbow was I have yet to this day personally interacted with anyone who knew Scripture better than him. He knew it amazingly well. But more amazing than that, when he wasn't teaching, he was in Sunday school. Learning, trying to learn something from a schmuck like me. Who does that? Why would you do that? There's almost nothing I could possibly have to offer him. Why does he do it? Because there's joy in the word. You never know when the Holy Spirit's going to grab your attention and when he's going to emphasize or show you something that over your years of study, pouring over the New Testament you've never seen before, That is imitation-worthy. Let your students see you soak in the Word. Let your children see you soak in the Word. Don't drop them off and leave your own opportunities behind. We might comfort ourselves and say, well, at least they don't know what they don't know. If they don't see, they, they won't know any different. Maybe not, but they notice what they do see. And sooner or later, their questions will outgrow our ability to answer them if we don't continue on in the pursuit. I plead with you, don't neglect the good gift of teaching that the Lord has given you. Immerse yourself in the Word. Become an imitator of the apostles' of one another, and of the Lord himself. That is a tremendous opportunity, and there is joy in it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is our life, and we cling to it. We pray that you would, through all of the ministries this fall, through the regular teaching and preaching of your word, transform and renew our minds, that we, looking to Christ, beholding his face, might be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We pray that you would do this for us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.